0: Welcome to Future Sight, a show from Capgemini Invent, I'm Molly Judge. On this show, we explore new ways for you to adapt and grow for the future of business. This week, we're looking to the future implications of the COVID-19 vaccines that are currently being brought to market. We're going to dig into the supply chains, societal issues, and how the new processes created will fundamentally change how we approach life sciences going forward. To get to grips with both the science and the business implications, we brought on two people that have been intimately involved with the development and distribution of vaccines over the last few months.
1: Hi, my name is Kate Broderick. I'm Senior Vice President of Research and Development at Inovio Pharmaceuticals.
2: Liza Sylvester. I'm a Principal in Life Sciences at Capgemini Invent, based in New York City, working across North America.
0: So I'm, I'm going to start off the conversation by asking Kate, um, what, what's what been different about this vaccination process than other processes? Can you talk a little bit about that process and also what was different between what has come before and what's come now, just so we've got a bit of a basis for this conversation?
1: Yeah, certainly. So um, as you quite rightly said, Ollie, Prior to January of 2020, basically my job had always been working on vaccines for emerging infectious diseases. So in the past, I'd worked on Ebola, on Zika, on MERS, um, on a variety of different infectious disease topics. So we at Anovio, but we as a scientific community hadn't had experience of working um, on sort of pandemic outbreaks for diseases. But what happened in January Um, with the outbreak of COVID, I think really kind of focused the entire globe on this isn't kind of just a regional disease that'll be in the media for a certain period of time. This is something that's going to impact us all. So really very early on in this outbreak, it became apparent that this was not business as usual, that really what we've done in the past would need to be extremely accelerated to deal with the sort of unfolding crisis over the the first few months of the year.
0: Can you run us through what it's taken to bring a vaccine to market? What What's that process looked like? How difficult has it been? Do you feel like you were supported correctly? Or do you think that there were some snags along the way? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so let's firstly take sort of a historical glance back. So in the past, the fastest vaccine ever brought from the development stage to what we call mark or to approval, it was four years, and that was for months. But that was by far the fastest that ever had been achieved in the field. On average, it's about 10 years. So that's really just, I'm giving you that that timeline really just to put into context what's happened since January, because the fact now in the UK and the US, people are being vaccinated with a vaccine that did not exist in January is absolutely phenomenal. And, And the reason that I say that is because... And historically, when we would go through vaccine development processes, which you can imagine are incredibly complicated and just way too um dense from an explanation standpoint to go in here. I could talk for the whole hour about everything, but suffice to say, basically, you generally, historically would come up with a design. You would test that in a variety of different settings, going through testing in the laboratory, testing in animals. Then you would create that package. Then you would go into the clinic. Well, what happened differently in 2020 with COVID was we said, we clearly don't have time to do all of that sequentially. We need to do all of that in parallel. So, we really condensed what would have been many years of work into several months of work. Um, Now, I, I do want to, though, be very clear in saying that in no way did that impact the safety perspective of of developing a vaccine, all that did was cost a lot more money than it would have cost under normal circumstances because you would have done it step by step. So that's really the difference in my kind of opinion between what's happened in the past and what's happening this year really was the at-risk development that we did. And what I mean by that was everybody was willing to say, okay, we're going to spend this amount of money knowing that we might either have to redo it or we might have to do it differently again. But it's worth that sort of upfront expenditure to try and bring in those timelines by many months or in fact many years. So that's really how we've managed to get vaccines into the clinic so incredibly quickly. And and the fact that last week and this week we're now vaccinated, People with the Pfizer vaccine is it's unbelievable. Truly, to me, that is such a mammoth achievement for humankind. Um, And I do hope that people appreciate all the work that's gone into that from the perspective of the clinicians, the, um, the scientists, the manufacturers, the logistics that have gone into that is quite remarkable. That said, without wanting to be a downer about it. This is just part of the puzzle and there's so much still that has to be done before, you know, we can put a lid on this pandemic.
0: I, I think there's been a lot of focus on the science here and bringing a vaccine to market. obviously, it's a hugely important thing to do. But I think there's a lot of hidden components that people aren't seeing. What have been some of the major struggles in the rollout of this kind of stuff? You mentioned you mentioned logistics and some of the societal sort of persuasion that you have to do.
2: I think so from a supply chain perspective, fascinating, very different challenges depending on the vaccine and depending on the technology. So an mRNA vaccine is fundamentally produced in a very different way than a traditional vaccine, and that has implications on manufacturing and supply. The vaccines that require extreme cold temperature, which not all of them do, have a very different challenge for supply chain, because that means you can't just get the vaccine to whoever can pay for it you have to get it to places that have the storage facilities and that have adequate volume of need to justify having the storage facilities. Nobody's buying a $20,000 fridge for five vaccinations. And so you can think through the implications. There's a tangential challenge resulting from that complexity of, of supply chain issues, which is that there's different access. When we think about a family in Africa mom and dad really want to get their family vaccinated, but they have to walk four hours to the local, the the nearest clinic. And that clinic prob- probably doesn't have negative 94 Fahrenheit refrigeration. They're going to need a different vaccine and potentially it will take them longer to get vaccinated, especially if they have to go twice. So access is the other issue. And just to tie this back to the supply chain issue, I think part of the solution to both supply chain and access is no one vaccine is the answer to all, because due to the supply chain and access complexities, there will need to be a different vaccine. I, in New York City, am probably going to go to my local pharmacy and get my vaccination, it could be highly refrigerated and I might need it twice and that's okay. That works for me. Other demographics will need something um, that works for them that may be a one shot vaccination and maybe doesn't require extreme refrigeration. As a
1: scientist, I guess people really this year asked me many times, oh what what is it that keeps you up at night? To me it was never getting a safe effective vaccine. I I always had complete confidence that we would be able to achieve that and it's fantastic to see that we're getting those results already. But what did keep me up at night was really Eliza's point that One, we're talking about vaccinating 8 billion people. That's something that's never, ever been attempted or achieved before. Um, And this concept of a one-size-fits-all vaccine, that's not going to happen at all. We're going to need almost a library of different vaccines that are going to be able to be suitable for uh, the elderly population, might need a different vaccine than a paediatric population. And the vaccine required for sub-Saharan Africa might look really distinct from the vaccine that's required for North America and Western Europe. This whole concept of what we call durability of protection, so what does that mean? It just basically means that once you've got the vaccine, how long are you actually protected from COVID 19? At the moment, we have absolutely no idea. And that's not a criticism, it's just the disease hasn't been around long enough and the vaccines haven't been around long enough for us to know the answer to that question. So you can see that if the vaccine protects us for two years, five years, 10 years maybe. Oh, amazing. That would be a a huge win. But if these early vaccines only protect us for three months, six months, even a year, essentially what you've got to do is think about revaccinating those 8 billion people again. So, it, it's so complex it's not it's great that we've got past this hurdle of getting some efficacious vaccine that's wonderful and i'm not downplaying that's such a massive achievement for humankind let's not be blinded by the fact that there are so many additional complexities to this situation and before we really get to the point where we can say we've won the battle i, I think just everybody needs to be aware of that
0: Who do we think is responsible for essentially bringing all of this together? We've got a lot of collaboration going on between private entities in life science companies, and then we've got logistics firms, we've got governments trying to bring the right amount into each of their countries. Who should be running this? Who's responsible for making sure that the right thing gets to the right place?
2: Everybody is responsible. And my challenge to anybody who listens to this podcast would be, don't look for the answer for who's responsible. Ask how you can take an impact, can take an action within your own organization or community. So whether that's as a mom, you're responsible. Find a way to get your children and your your family vaccinated. Whether it's as a business owner, find a way to make sure that your employees are safe. Come up with new ways for your customers to interact safely. If you're in IT, maybe there's an opportunity for you to develop a contact tracing application or some other technology tool. If you are in supply chain, maybe your business is going to be impacted and you can help in a certain way. So I think it's not who should be in control. It's what can I do to help the challenges? Because the challenges are too great for any for one eye.
0: So is this an ethical challenge then to maybe some of the business owners listening to this on how they can actually get involved rather than sitting, waiting on the sidelines oh, for I, vaccines to take hold?
2: On the contrary, Ali, I don't think this is ethical at all. I think it's opportunistic. I think it's like you have to get involved or your business will. And, and it isn't do it for the good of mankind. The scientists are already doing stuff for the good of mankind. And the hospital and front frontline workers are they're taking care of the do-it for mankind. I'm asking any business owner or business leader who listens to this to say, how's this gonna impact what I do, what my customers do, what my clients do, et cetera. And how should I be thinking about this? And for example, Kate, one of the things that I I still and blown away by is the idea that when you got the virus, your company got the virus, that within three hours, it was able to develop, I don't know what the proper term, but a temporary template for the solution for the vaccine. That's incredible. That's so incredible. Because historically, manufacturing and supply wasn't impacted. That wasn't a challenge, because you didn't have medicines that could be created in three hours. If you've got a new ability to create vaccination tools in three hours, that puts an incredible opportunity and challenge. Because everywhere there's a challenge, obviously, there's an opportunity on the businesses surrounding manufacturing and supply of medicines.
1: Absolutely. You are completely hit the nail on the head there. We, we were really very honoured to be able to say that after getting the sequence um, of the virus on the 10th of January, I'll, I'll never really forget that experience, getting the email with the genetic sequence of the virus and then stayed up and we were able to get the design vaccine in three hours. And, and that was brilliant. And then we knew exactly what to do next because we've done it a hundred times with other with other vaccines that we've worked through, albeit that this was done much faster. But really, The massive hurdles then came in saying, how do we then scale up this? Because you might have the best, the most safe, the most effective vaccine in the world. But if you can only make a few million doses, your relevance in the current scenario is pretty limited. So really it was that kind of meeting that hurdle of manufacturing and manufacturing to scale of not millions, not tens of millions, not hundreds of millions, but we're talking about billions of doses that are required. That is a mind boggling um, Effort, and I heard somebody, and I, and I, sorry, because I can't give them the give the quote to them. I can't remember who said it, but that even if we add together AstraZeneca's, Moderna's, and Pfizer's vaccine together, that at best they're able to to produce about three billion doses, which is amazing, and that's fantastic. But put that in the context of eight billion people on Earth that need it, there's still an awful lot of people who will not be receiving those first vaccines and it's that whole coming back to can we make enough of this vaccine these vaccines fast enough and move them around the world quickly enough to ensure that we can really make an
0: impact o- on this pandemic obviously getting the amount of vaccines into the system is critical and that's a monumental effort in itself but eliza something that you have brought up the the Misinformation around vaccines, the convincing people to take them is a whole nother challenge. Maybe if we put our heads in the same space as a business owner or a CEO of a company, how could someone that is in a position of power or maybe less power let's say leadership, how can they encourage people to take the vaccine and what science do they need to understand in order to explain it to the people that may look to them for advice going forward?
2: So I think that there's there's two responses that I have. So on, on the one hand, you can give people data and science, absolutely. I, I don't think you can necessarily change conviction. So for example, if, if someone has a religious conviction or an immuno condition that prevents them from getting the vaccine, there is going to be the second part, which is as a leader, You have to accept there's some people who can't or won't get it. And you have to be able to empower them to work effectively to the extent that is possible with innovation and technology. You have to empower those people who can't or won't get the vaccine to be effective. I hope very much that most people will get it. A vaccine doesn't save your life. Being
1: vaccinated saves your life. And it was absolutely horrifying to me um when I looked at some of the data in regards, and this is just specific to the U.S., but I'm sure it has some applicability all around the world, that in, I think, March of this year, um, they surveyed the American population and 73%, I think, of people said they would get a COVID-19 vaccine. By August, that had fallen to 50%. And that just, that horrifies me. That is so frightening and so sobering to me. If that's true, and we can only persuade 50% of the US population to take this vaccine, there is no end in sight we will not be able to overcome this pandemic. So that's really, to Ollie, to your earlier question, what what can we do to, as people who have some influence on this, what can we do to try and up those numbers? And, and I should caveat that by saying that, to be fair, since November, our elections here in the US, there does seem to be a little bit of an uptake in, in people now saying that they would Be open to taking the vaccine. So that's really good news. But what can we do? Certainly, from the perspective of a scientist, which I am, I think generally the scientific community doesn't do a great job of. Of messaging what it is that we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. Um, I think we tend to speak in a language that can be incredibly confusing to everybody else who's not a scientist. And I don't think that helps. So I think generally the scientific community, the medical community need to maybe do a better job of this. I'm pretty horrified on a daily basis, my friends and family saying things like, Oh, I don't know anyone who's had COVID, so I don't think it's really as big a deal. I mean, and and that's those are you know direct quotes that these are this is people are still not convinced that this is a pretty critical situation and yet in america every 36 seconds one person dies from covid i i am a bit frightened about what it's going to take to get people to understand the situation that we're in at the moment
0: looking towards 2025 i think that the one topic that's been done to death over the last uh, last few uh, months is the new normal but i'd quite like to put a bit of a scientific spin on that we'd like to give our um listeners a little bit of a tool set or a framework for how to talk, uh, talk and think about the topic that we're discussing each episode. What do you think the business owners and leaders should be taking responsibility for within their own organizations and how should they be planning for the future?
1: I, I, and I believe every day the global economy is losing $500 billion. So th- the pandemic and the economy are so tightly intermingled. But I guess I would then bring that back and say, so then what do we do as scientists, as clinicians, just as a society to say, we cannot allow this to occur in the way that this has unfolded again in the future? Now, I am not by any means saying that this will be the last time we ever see a pandemic. Frankly, from a scientific perspective, I would say we should prepare that this will happen again. But not to frighten everybody more, say to Liza's point what have we done this time and there are many amazing things that we have done right this time and many amazing things that we'll be able to apply to technology moving forward but also do a sort of a forensic look at what have we done wrong or what what we'd be able to reflect on and do differently in the the future so that firstly and foremostly from a humanity standpoint we don't have this horrendous loss of life that we have had but also from an economic standpoint what can we do to Sure that people's businesses don't go out of out of work um, so incredibly fast. People don't lose their jobs. We don't see this huge decline in the global economic um, climate as fast as we have. There, there are so many big picture questions that really need to be discussed. Um, and, and frankly, and I hate this to sound so kind of coarse, but it all comes down to money again, Ollie. Um, before January twenty twenty. Getting funding to do emerging infectious disease research was like getting blood out of a stone. And I, I honestly hope that if one positive thing comes out of this whole awful experience is that it's an appreciation of we need to be proactive and not reactive, because reactive always takes longer than being proactive.
2: Honestly, I've been working in the regulatory compliance field for many years, and very often the companies who choose to wait to make sure things are being done in the right way are the ones who end up paying the most for it. The countries who cross their T's and dot their I's and do inventory and house cleaning proactively don't ever have to spend those extreme amounts of money. And the same could be said of, from a humanistic perspective, how we approach the next crisis or what could be a crisis that we can avoid if we're proactive looking for it. One of the things I I know that in the United States it pained me was that there used to be a government task force in charge of looking for the next pandemic threat and that was shut down. I would hope that Going forward, there's some minimum amount of government resource allocated to monitoring these types of threats on a global basis. And I would hope that to a certain extent, the global organizations like WHO, et cetera, will start putting a little bit of focus on how they can communicate globally in advance of these types of threats. Absolutely. And I hope this isn't too scientific, um,
1: but really. We can get a glimpse of what's circulating in the wild animal population before it makes that jump into humans. And if this If this pandemic doesn't teach us that we really need to focus money and attention on that surveillance, um, I honestly don't know what we must have dodged so many bullets prior to 2020. People really do need to understand this, that this has the absolute potential of happening again. And the fact that we haven't had a pandemic flu strain for a while that will happen again and likely again in our lifetimes. So what can we do? I'm not trying to scare people, not at all. I'm just trying to say this is what we need to be prepared for because look at the damage that has been done through loss of human lives, impact to people's livelihoods, impact to global economies. What can we do to
2: ensure that if this does happen again, What can we do to minimize those impacts? I'd like to suggest or propose something like some of what's happened recent in recent years with cancer, where if you go back ten years ago, we didn't really have some of the infrastructures that we have now and the paths for communication. What if in twenty twenty one there's a new cross government, cross-country organization? That invites both pharma and regulators to share insights and intel on upcoming threats. What if there is platforms for private sector and public sector to collaborate so that maybe pharmacy pharmaceuticals firms identify a need for contact tracing and technology firms race to develop that solution and regulators are able to collaborate to ensure that it meets regulatory needs what if that kind of cross-country cross-nation cross-sector collaboration was possible
0: who would you say needs to start thinking about that is that businesses that should start pulling together on that or is that government yeah
2: is... it, it's kind of a family around the table it can't be one person in the family who says we need this it needs to be everybody saying let's come on guys let's get at a table and and talk to each other and i think it can happen organically almost anywhere i, I personally have started an initiative with some of my Capgemini Invent and broader Capgemini colleagues called Bridging the Gap to literally bring together forums, webinars, points of view, opportunities for private sector and public sector to collaborate and talk. And this is something that is not unique. There's a lot of other organizations that are starting to do this. And I would point to models like Project Data Sphere, which is about cancer where they invite companies to provide data on cancer research so that all future scientists can benefit from that research in a non-competitive way whereas in the past I work at company A I do my trial in 1986 I put the results on the shelf somebody comes back in 2020 wants to do a similar study that could benefit from my results it's not accessible that kind of You know, cross-sharing in a non-competitive way is something we would all benefit from.
0: So almost making science more accessible. To Kate's point earlier, maybe um, giving science a better wrapper than it currently has to bring it to more people.
1: Yes we, as in the scientists, need to self-reflect and say, take a wee bit of responsibility, Ollie. I I think it's easy when you can read about, you know, the anti-vaxxers and you can just throw your arms up and say, oh, you know, the, the statements they're making are ridiculous and have no basis in fact. But that actually doesn't help. And that doesn't really help to get to the root of people's issues with vaccines, which really are simple in that they just want what's best for their family. And those people feel that for some reason, that vaccines aren't what's best for their children or for their family, then we need to have a Open dialogue with people to explain to them. Let me talk to you from the perspective of a scientist, but also somebody who's a mum of two young kids. Why I personally would definitely get my kids vaccinated as soon as possible. I just I think we can apply that to vaccine hesitancy, but I think we can apply that across you know the board for many issues that we just need to come together on and really put together global initiatives future-looking global initiatives to ensure
2: that we're better prepared the next time. I think there's a key word, Kate, that you're making me think of, which is democratization. Democrati- we talk about democratization of healthcare. We talk about democratization of a lot of things. I would like to see democratization of science, where science isn't something just owned by the sciences, scientists. Science and the way it impacts me as a consumer, as a patient, is something that we all own a piece of. I think that's fantastic.
1: And there are so, I, I think people are interested. I think people want to know, they want to understand. But I think w- we as a scientific community hasn't done a great job of conveying that message. And that I hope is something we can do better at. Mm-hmm.
0: big takeaway from this entire process is that when you're tackling an event on such a large scale, it doesn't just fall to one set of people to see you through. Kate mentioned the magnitude of the operation that's been put in place. We need to vaccinate 8 billion people. In order for that to actually happen, every part of society will have to pull together to build out a healthy vaccination system. A big thank you to Kate Broderick and Eliza Sylvester. You can find out more about our guests and the work that they do in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast was brought to you by Capgemini Invent. We'll see you next week.